But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone and uh, those who are maybe tuning in from afar. You're on vacation. Glad that you can join us virtually. You know, uh, back in the last century, the first half of the last century, a major character in world history was Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with him, you know that he was uh, a political figure in India who through nonviolent protest and uh, fastings and you know, uh, different events was able to induce the uh, British Empire to uh, give India its independence. And from there, he helped lead that movement until he was ultimately struck down by an assassin's uh, bullets. He, uh, he interacted, even though he was Hindu, he interacted with some of the of the best Christian minds of the early 20th century. And one of the things that he said in that interaction pertains to our message this morning as he was speaking about the scriptures. He said, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. If that was true in the early 1900s, almost 100 years ago, how much more true is it today as the fruit of what Gandhi said has borne fruit in our nation's churches and in our nation itself? Uh, Arizona Christian University did a study uh, with George Barna this last year in 2020. They released a report about the average worldview and, and where is the Christian worldview within our nation today. And this is one of the findings that that report gave us. It says, growing skepticism about the Bible, especially among young people and even in some of the nation's largest Christian denominations, is to blame for the precipitous decline of biblical worldview in America. It goes on to say in this report that the percentage of Americans who now believe the Bible is the inspired true word of God is down by over 20% in the last 20 years. And it parallels a a great decrease, a 50% decrease in a biblical worldview in America over the same time, from 12% of Americans to currently 8%, the lowest number ever recorded. Goes into even greater detail by by religion and by uh, church and denomination. So, for example, 13% of Americans are identified as evangelical and attend evangelical churches. Yet within that group of people, only 21% of them have a biblical worldview. 21% of Americans identify as Roman Catholic and attend Roman Catholic churches. Out of that 21% of Americans, 1% have a biblical worldview. 
In the mainline denominations, Protestant denominations of our nation, 8% of Americans go to a mainline uh, Protestant church. And of that 8%, 8% of them have a biblical worldview. And so the report goes on to uh, uh, you know, sound an alarming uh, bell. It says that the result of all of this is that young people under the age of 30 are the least likely to have a biblical worldview, and they are the least likely to engage with Christianity through a church that believes the Bible is the inspired Word of God. We are that kind of church. And so it puts in stark contrast the challenge before us as we think about winning the next generation to Christ and discipling them. We are that kind of church. We believe that God loves us, that he is a good and loving creator. And as such, he has revealed himself to us in two ways. In general revelation, we learn basic truths about God, his awesomeness, his grandeur through nature, as the Bible tells us in Romans chapter one and in the Psalms, we learn about the, the grandeur and holiness of God. Through the, the law of God that is implanted within us because we are created in the image of God. Every human being has a basic knowledge of right and wrong, that there are certain things that are sin and certain things that are not unacceptable. We call this general revelation. General revelation is sufficient to condemn. It cannot save us and lead us to reconciliation with our heavenly Father and with our Creator. So we need that second type of revelation, which is called special revelation. We need special revelation so that we can better understand God's holiness, our sinfulness, and the solution to our sin problem, which is Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of this special revelation. The scriptures Old Testament and New Testament, they all point to and bring us to Jesus Christ so that we can find our forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God. So as we begin this summer series that's entitled Wonderful Words, we're going to start with a word from which everything else is really kind of dependent. This is that foundational word and it appeals that it speaks to the word of God. It is that word that is in this passage, the word inspiration, inspiration. So as we look at it this morning, I first wanna make an observation and then we're gonna ask three important questions. We're gonna ask what and why and how as it relates to us. So first, an observation. The Bible is not just an inspiring book, it is the inspired word of God. We just read this passage from 2 Timothy chapter three. Let's set a little bit of context before we kind of dig into these verses a little more deeply. Beginning back in verse one, verse one uh, Paul begins to warn his protege, Timothy. He says, we are living in the last days. And as the last days go on, more and more, the evil within humanity will begin to manifest itself in depravity and vice and immorality. 
He says that there will arise people through the ages that appear to be very intelligent and they will develop philosophies and theories, some of which are directly opposed to the word of God and it will deceive humanity, but others will come from within the church itself and deceive the the very people of God. And so he warns Timothy to be on guard against what will happen here as we live in the last days. Specifically, he says the way you prepare yourself and you are on guard against what will happen is to observe two things. First of all, observe what I've taught you, Timothy. Paul was an apostle, obviously, of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was also personally the mentor of Timothy who had great influence on him. He was the man who Timothy would look to for answers as he was ministering for the sake of the kingdom. And it does bring up an important question, and that is, who do you listen to, right? As we look at the world around us and all of the different truth claims that are put before us, who is in your life that is trustworthy, who you can listen to? Is the person that you're listening to, Christian, someone with maybe a lot of flash and entertainment and charisma with a a great following on social media? Is that who you're listening to? Is that who influences you and what you think about different subjects, some of which have uh, life-altering consequences? Or are you listening to someone with a proven track record, a saint of God? Maybe they don't have the flash. Maybe they don't have the charisma. Maybe they don't know how to post to their story on Instagram and TikTok is something that a clock does, right? but they have the the scars of life and the wisdom that comes from walking with God faithfully through the decades. And they've grown mature and solid in the faith. Do you have someone in in your life like that to whom you are listening? Someone like could be your Paul as Timothy had in his life. The second thing that Paul points to with uh, Timothy is he tells him, remember what your mama taught you right? That's the, the, the modern English version, right? Remember what your mama and grandma taught you. And he points back to that wonderful verse in verse 14. <clears throat> you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. Parents, Paul says, Timothy, you have a great advantage. Why? Because from the time you were in diapers, Literally, that, the word used here for childhood is uh, an infant in diapers. From the moment he comes out of the womb, he has a mother and a grandmother who begin to teach him the scriptures, which for Timothy was the Old Testament. For us, it's the Old Testament and New Testament, right? There's, there's no overstating the importance of this in a child's life. I, I look at my own life and I'm thankful for this same testimony I mean, some of my earliest memories as a two, three-year-old, I can still see in my mind's eye, my mom sitting by the bed, the lights are dim, and she would read Bible stories or she would tell me those Bible stories and she acted them out for me. And then to calm me down from that, she would then take out a, a book and she would pray with me and then she would take out a book. And for the first few years of our lives, you know, it was just, it was one of two books. It was Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn. And she read those books to me until I would fall asleep. I learned how to read through Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. My first book report in first grade was on Huckleberry Finn, if you can believe it. 
That probably wouldn't go over very well today, but uh, those of you who've read it, you understand what I mean there. Um, but the influence that is there, it's unbelievable. You know, Catherine and I both, we learned our alphabet with Bible verses. A, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. B, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. C, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. D, depart from evil and do good. E, even a child is known by his good works. F, fear not for I am with thee. G, God is love. H, honor your father and your mother for this is the first, I could go on. If you want the rest of them, ask Catherine because she's smarter than me, right? I don't remember what X was. Do you remember X? Uh, I don't know if that was. A... You know, D.A. Carson tells the story of his own little girl. And he said when he had his, his first child, he, like all of us, read her the nursery rhymes. And about 18 months old, he noticed one day that she had the nursery rhyme book in her lap and she was playing by herself and she was reading the nursery rhymes and reciting them perfectly. And of course she couldn't read, but just from hearing the nursery rhymes, she had learned them. And so that sparked his memory and, or his mind. And so that night he opened up the Bible to 1 Corinthians and he read to her 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and then a few verses out of chapter one. The next night, 1 Corinthians 13 and a few more in chapter one. And next, and he progresses like this through the book of 1 Corinthians in about three or four weeks. <clears throat> He opens up 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and he says, though I have the tongues of men and, and he paused in this little voice said, angels, if I have not love, I am but a, a, a tingling cymbal and a clanging gong. By the time she was two, she had memorized 1 Corinthians chapter 13. By the time she was five, he had a list of passages of scripture that his daughter had now saturated and planted in her mind because a godly parent took the time to read and teach her and help her to memorize the word of God. Parents, it's, it's, it's good to read inspiring stories to our children and all of the different things that are out there, but do not overlook that the most important thing that you can read to them is not inspiring stories, but the inspired word of God. This is what will change their life, and this is what will give them a biblical worldview. The Bible's different than all these other writings, as good as they may be, because it is the inspired word of God. It is the sacred text, he says, to Timothy. It is the sacred writing. So we need to answer some questions about this word inspiration. Let's begin, first of all, with what it does mean and what it does not mean. The first part of verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration comes from a Greek word, really two Greek words that are put together, theonoustos. Theos, theos, God, noustos, to breathe or the breath or spirit of a person, right? So the scriptures are the words that come from God's breath. They are God-breathed. In other words, think of it like this. The words you're hearing right now are Jerry's words. Why? Because from within my body, my breath, which oftentimes 
in the ancient world was seen as an, an aspect of a person's spirit, their inner person, right? That breath is leaving my body, coming up through my vocal cords, vibrating, making sound, and coming out as legible words, hopefully, and they are my words because it's my breath. The scriptures, the sacred writings is God breathe. They are God's words. So what does that not mean? What does inspiration not mean? Let's start right there first. All scripture does not mean that every religious book that is out there, every book that may be given the moniker, a sacred text, like say the Quran or some other uh, world religion's holy book, that does not mean that those books are also inspired by God. All scriptures is referring specifically in this verse to the Old Testament scriptures, which is what Timothy had. In a few minutes, we'll see how it also relates and includes the New Testament. So it doesn't include all holy books. It doesn't mean that everything that the prophet or the apostle may have written was automatically inspired by God. If we find a box full of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth or Ephesus that are not in our Bible, it does not mean that those letters deserve to be considered on par with scripture and that they are the inspired word of God. We know that they wrote other things, they referred to them, yet they are not necessarily inspired by God. Inspiration doesn't mean that a particular translation of the scriptures is inspired by God, even though some of us were taught that in our youth. And it certainly doesn't mean that there isn't truth outside of the Bible. Listen, all truth is God's truth, wherever it comes from, right? All truth is from God. The Bible is focused on revealing the most important truth that humanity as a whole needs to have. It's matters of eternity and of God and our relationship with God. But the Bible does not contain all the truth that is in the world. Science has truth. Math has truth. History has truth. All of these other disciplines have truth within them, and where they are true, you can bank it that that comes from God. Where they are true, they will be in harmony with the Scriptures. They will not contradict Scripture, but nevertheless, it is important for us to recognize that God reveals important information to us in truth, through means other than the scriptures. The scriptures have a very specific kind of truth that they're revealing. So what does inspiration mean, okay? Well, let's give you a, a first, kind of set the stage for why this is even the first word on our list. In the late 1800s, in American Christianity, liberal theology began to creep into the seminaries and by extension into the churches of America. Those who hold to historical Christianity begin to resist and to fight against this onslaught of liberal theology. And so this, this became a very well-known and, and, and publicized struggle, and so much so that in the early 1900s, in the 1910s, a book was written, and it was called The Fundamentals of the Faith. You've all heard that phrase, right? A fundamentalist. Uh, is a fundamentalist a positive or a negative term typically in our world today? Positive or negative? Which one? Negative, right, negative, right? 
But in the, the origin of that word within Christianity, it was actually, from, uh, maybe from my perspective, it was a positive term. Uh, the fundamentals of the faith are captured in the first three vows that we take in our church to be a member of this church. But what was interesting was that the very first fundamental of the faith was the inspiration of the scriptures. Because this was where the attack was happening. Uh, by the way, you fast forward 60 some odd years from that moment and the founding of our own denomination, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, when we broke off from the Presbyterian Church United States, the mainline denomination in America, the reason why we broke away, our founding fathers said no more, we cannot stay in this denomination, we're gonna start a new denomination. It was over this issue of the inspiration of the scriptures. So what is it? Well, from that uh, book, The Fundamentals of the Faith, the author, key author was B.B. Warfield, and he wrote on this quite extensively. He says this, inspiration, it's this kind of a definition that's come down through the decades. Inspiration is therefore usually defined as a supernatural influence exerted in the sacred writers by the Spirit of God by which, by virtue of which, their writings are given divine trustworthiness. Inspiration is usually defined as a supernatural influence exerted in the sacred writings by the Spirit of God by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. God communicated his truth, his words, through various mediums and different ways to the prophets, to the apostles. The scriptures reveal this, for example, in Hebrews chapter one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He communicated to the prophets his spirit of, the Spirit of God led them. He did, did this in various ways and in different mediums. Some received dreams. Others received like almost a, a, a very clear message from God, which was then dictated to maybe a secretary. All kinds of different ways. It wasn't like David, for example, came home at the end of a hard day on the, in the shepherd fields and was ready to go to bed. And God said, hold it before you go to bed sit down at your desk, take up your pen. Okay, Lord, all right. Ready, David? Ready, Lord. Blessed is the man, blessed is the man who walketh not, who walketh not. In the seat of the scornful. Okay, can you, what was that again? In the seat of the scornful. No, not at all, okay. Now, did some of that happen? Yeah, Jeremiah, he received the message of God. He dictates it to the secretary who writes it all down. And it's interesting in that story how the, the, the priest of God resisted the message. So they took the, the letter and they burned it to destroy it, thinking, okay, we're done with this. Like, you know, God isn't going to repeat to Jeremiah what he wanted people to know, okay? And he did it all over again. So some people had dreams. The Lord worked in all kinds of different ways, but what's important to realize is what Peter says. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy, no message in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. And the way he moved was different. 
And this is why we have different genres within the Bible. We have poetry and narrative and epistles and genealogies and all kinds of different forms that it took. But the point is, is that God was behind all of it, that he gave the message and the men of God then recorded it. Inspiration, with inspiration, we understand it that it is verbal. It extends to the very words or the writings themselves. And we also use another word associated with this, plenary. That's a fancy word that says it includes all of Scripture. It extends to every part of it in its entirety. And for us, it extends to the New Testament. Not just the Old Testament as what Timothy had and what Paul says about the Old Testament. Why do we believe that? Why do we believe that the New Testament is on par and at the same level as the Old Testament? Obviously, Judaism doesn't accept this, but Christianity does. And that's one of the major differences between these two world religions. Why do we believe this? Well, the first and most obvious one is what Jesus himself does. Jesus equates his words and his message with the scriptures that came through the prophets, and he says this has the authority of God behind it. It was Jesus who teaches that after he would leave, he would send the Holy Spirit to the apostles so that they would remember what he had taught, and they could in turn communicate it and teach it to the disciples who would come behind them. The apostles themselves reflect that in their role as the apostles and the prophets, they're essentially in that same role as the prophets of the Old Testament, and they do so in the New Testament, that the church is founded upon the foundation of the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament. And they talk about, for example, Paul and Peter, how they receive from the Holy Spirit the messages of God and, and enlightenment and visions that they then recorded and give to us. This is what inspiration means. So, why is it important? Why is inspiration so important? Why did, why did we actually start our own denomination over this subject? If you look at verse 15, it says, and from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, listen to the list, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Because the Bible is inspired by God, it is absolutely true and authoritative. Inspiration, as I mentioned at the very beginning, is the foundation for all of these other words that we are going to be discussing this summer as they appear in the Bible. Why do we trust these words, believe these words? It's because the inspiration of the scriptures. Often associated with these, this word inspiration are two other I words, but words that start with I, inerrancy and infallibility. Have you ever heard of those before? Have you ever heard the statement, the Bible is the inerrant word of God? Right? What does that mean? That means that the truth claims of the Bible and the original manuscripts, when those prophets, those apostles wrote these things down, the truth claims of the Bible are true. Okay? 
It doesn't mean that everything that is in the Bible is true. Okay? Say, whoa, wait a second. What do you mean by that? This is how you get off it? Think about it for a minute. Remember, different genres in the Bible, right? You got to interpret them according to genres. You know, when Jesus says, I'm the door, it doesn't mean Jesus has a doorknob in the middle of his chest, right? You got to interpret it properly. In the laments of the Psalms, you ever noticed in the laments of the Psalms, when, when these men and, and these men and women of God are in deep conflict, how the lament may often start with, God, you have abandoned me. You're nowhere around. Where are you? Is that true? Had God actually abandoned them? No, but that's what it felt like. And God in his sovereign will allows that experience of that individual to be reflected within the scripture so that later on when the resolution comes about and the, the understanding that no, God never abandons you is be able to put against the the contrast of what that person was experiencing. So we have to be careful that we don't interpret the scriptures literalistically, right? Literally, yes, there's truth. And that truth is true. It comes from God, but we need to be careful how we interpret it. So inerrancy applies to what the, the truth claims that the original writers put down on that scroll. And to the extent that we have accurate copies of what they wrote, we have the very word of God. Inerrancy doesn't mean, for example, that the New Testament has to quote the Old Testament exactly word for word. There's examples in the New Testament that, like we do, it will summarize or it will cut out a clause or whatever. That doesn't mean that the Bible isn't, is filled with error. Oh, they didn't quote it exactly like it was in the Old Testament. You know, or in the New Testament will say Christ, whereas the Old Testament said God. Oh, well, that's an error. See, that's, this is what the skeptics do to try to point out that, oh, there's 4,000 errors in the Bible. What hogwash. It's intellectually dishonest. The Bible's inerrant. It's infallible. In other words, the Bible cannot have error in its truth claims because the author is God. It's God-breathed. It comes from him. So it has his authority over it. How did Jesus please and glorify God. He obeyed the scriptures. He glorified him by obeying the scriptures, fulfilling every jot and tittle. So the Bible's inspired, by, by, because the Bible is written by God, inspired by God, it is absolutely true. It's authoritative in our lives. It means that God's power has been invested in us. It's the scriptures that God, the Holy Spirit, uses to save us. The, the passage says, the scriptures make us wise unto salvation. It is the, the preaching, the proclamation, the teaching of God's word that is invested with God's soul-saving power. Parents, a major part of our vision that we rolled out in 2018 that little tagline, 50 by our 50th, is we want to see 50 of our children led to Christ by their parents. I love leading children to Christ, but I want you to do it. I'll do it if you can't, but I want you to lead your children to Christ. And how do you do this? Well, I said earlier, start with reading the word of God to them, teaching it to them, talking to them about it. There is power in the word of God. 
Romans tells us this, right? How does somebody come to Christ without a preacher, without hearing the gospel proclaimed? There's power here. The scriptures are what the Holy Spirit uses to save us. It's what he uses to sanctify us and transform us into the image of Christ. That's what this passage is getting at. The reproving, the correcting, the instruction in righteousness, being thoroughly equipped for every good work. The power of God is invested in the very word of God, right? Well, so what? Okay, so what? This brings us to the end of it. How does this really make a difference in our daily lives? Well, let me start by sharing something with you that was of a, a significant impact to me. About 13 years ago or so, I was working for a, corp, a company in Jacksonville, Florida. I was doing a Bible study, and this lady in the Bible study kept saying, you sounded just like my pastor. And her pastor was a Presbyterian pastor. Well, you gotta know, at that time, the only thing I knew about the word Presbyterian, uh, I had my own ideas, but what was definitely one of those ideas was liberal rejection of the Word of God because that was all in the news and the media. And it was always, and I didn't know that there were different groups and that what was in the media was the mainline denomination. Well, one Sunday morning, Catherine and I were going to a church and I take a wrong turn, I miss my turn, go four miles or so out of my way and God takes us by that Presbyterian church. And the pastor stands up and he begins to preach. And as he began every message, and I would hear for years and years to come, and as we became close together and he became my mentor. And some of you are gonna recognize this because Rod Whited was the interim pastor here for about six, eight months. He would begin his message with this statement. And I think it's entirely applicable for all of us this morning. There is a place in the universe where you can go for absolute truth. Let's read it together. There is a place in the universe where you can go for absolute truth. Do you believe that, church? Amen? Amen. Okay, that's the Word of God. The mind of God is revealed within the Bible. Think about that. We have access to the eternal, infinite truth of God, and it is absolutely trustworthy. So this week, did you read it and study it and pay attention to it at least as closely as we did our 401k or our finances? Did we at least open it and spend time interacting with that? I mean, we have the words of our creator given to us. And the average Christian disregards it. It's why our churches are in the state that they're in today. It's why there is no biblical worldview and, over, and roughly 80% of evangelicals today because the scriptures are ignored. Christian church, do you cherish the Bible? Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you memorize it? Has it saturated your hearts and your mind? Second application. I'm gonna go back to D.A. Carson for a moment. 
something that we all can relate to. Uh, you know, we've heard all the nutritionists and the exercise gurus and all the people who look like, you know, they, they haven't aged in 20 years and, and they have been sending these messages to us, rightly so, about our diet and exercise. And one of the little catchphrases that we all know is, you are what you eat. Yeah, exactly. But D.A. Carson challenges that. He said, more importantly than you are what you eat, you are what you think. You are what you think. And Philippians chapter one, verse, or chapter two, verse five says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are confronted by all kinds of truth claims today. We're bombarded by them. How do you discern what is true and what is not true? Parents, as you raise your children, they are being bombarded at school, through television, through media, through any number of sources with truth claims that are opposite of what the scriptures teach. How do you combat that? How do you deal with that? Parents, can I give you five, I think, on this, the most important words that you can have. Five words, write them down or type them into your you know, phone or whatever. Your kids are gonna come with these questions. How do you answer that? Okay. Five important words. Ready? I, I mean, my life was so shaped by this. This is the, one of the best gifts my parents gave me. So I'm giving you Inez Clem wisdom this morning, okay? I can't claim it for myself. But here's the five words. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? How many times around our dinner table Mom and dad would deliberately tee up a topic and ask an opinion. And of course, your children all have their opinions and it reveals what they're listening to and what they're thinking about. And inevitably, my mom would turn to me and say, oh, that sounds great, but what does the Bible say? Okay, what does the Bible say? What a gift it is, and, and, and I'm so thankful that she just didn't give me the answers. She didn't give me the pat Sunday school answer to these questions, but she turned me back to the scriptures. She made me think about it, and when I didn't have a biblical concept or a, a verse or whatever to fall back on, she would bring it to the table or my dad would bring it to the table, which means to do that, parents, what? You gotta know your Bible. You got to read your Bible and spend time in the Bible so that you can do this for your family and for your kids. You bring out that verse and you let them wrestle with it. And you don't condemn them for questioning it. You allow the questions. You might even play devil's advocate. My dad was a phenomenal devil's advocate. The first time Catherine came to a meal at my family, she, it scared her. <laughs> a little bit. She was intimidated by it because we're going back and forth with each other. And my dad, if, if you said it was white, it was black. 
you know, or if you said black, he said white. But this is how they incorporated and instilled the scriptures within us to learn how to think about it and apply it to everyday situations. You're gonna get asked this by your children. I got last week, one of the children in our church came up to me right back behind the back row and she waited till I was, and she said, I have a couple of questions. And I said, okay. And the first one had to do with Gideon, a great question. Did Gideon sin when he asked God for the fleece? What a great question. And then she asked another question. I love this one. Does an elder have to be elderly? You know what I said to that one? I said, well, I'm not elderly and I'm an elder. No, but what a great question. And we talked about that. And, and you know, what, what does it mean to be elderly? And, and how, now, I, I pointed to Mick Hunenfeld, who is our youngest elder. He's in his 30s, I believe. And, but, you know, you're, you're elderly, not just by chronological age, but by your walk with God and maturity is what the script. But what great question. Your children are gonna come with those questions. What does the Bible say? Okay, did you write that down? Hope you did. Oh, by the way, what do you do? Here, here's some, some, some lanyap. Here's some lanyap for you. You know what lanyap is? Lanyap is New Orleans for some extra on top of all the other good stuff you get, right? Lanyap is the extra. Here's your extra. Sooner or later, they're going to come to you with one of those awkward questions, right? That there doesn't seem to be a Bible verse for. Like, like when one of my children came to me in junior high and said, Dad, can I go to so-and-so's house for a sleepover? And I said, okay, well, tell me about that, you know? And I asked, you know, who was gonna be there? And he told me all of his guy friends and all that. And then I just stopped and I said, are, are there gonna be any girls at this sleepover? And he was, uh, he goes, yeah. He goes, nope. <laughs> but dad, oh my, you know, and, and going on and back, you know, the way the kids do. He goes, what's wrong with it? Why can't I go? Four more words, parents. Biblical words, write it down. It's gonna help you in these tough situations. And it's gonna bring you back to God and bring them back to God's word. Ready? Because I said so. <laughs> right? right? <laughs> and to my child, I said, listen, there's wisdom in the Bible. And parents are called upon to be wise when their children are going to wanting to do something that is foolish. And the Bible gives me responsibility for you. And I'm to raise you up and to love you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And this is not wise and you aren't doing it. Because I said so is actually a pretty biblical principle at times on those tough things. You're welcome, parents. Hey, one final application this morning. Let's just don't forget that it's Jesus who we worship and it's Jesus who saves us, not the Bible. Okay? We get this sometimes out of whack. But here's the truth. Some of the most unchristian people I've ever met read their Bibles every day and knew it from cover to cover. Let's remember that the people who knew the Bible even better than Timothy were the Pharisees. They knew it inside and out. They worshiped the Bible and missed the Savior. Let's not be a church or not be Christians 
who so love the Bible that we end up becoming Pharisees about it and we miss that the whole point of the Bible is to bring us to Jesus, to grow us up so that we are more like Jesus. How do you know when you're off base here? Well, I think one thing, and this is really scriptural, you become a grumpy old, you know, whatever. Nobody wants to be around. There's no fruit of the Spirit there. The fruit of the Spirit's hardly on display. The, the, the grace. And one of the things, you know, I was thinking about that elderly question, and you know, I was thinking about some of our elders and just having walked with them for 13 years and watching, even in them, the fruit of the Spirit just become more and more evident in their life. So, so, so how do you know if you're out of whack that, you really, that you've got that priority is on Christ and not just the learning and the head knowledge of the Bible, which is important to learn it, but it can become almost idolatrous. How do you know? Is gentleness increasing in your life? Are you easier to get along with now or harder to get along with? <laughs> Are you more loving, more winsome? Is there more patience? Quicker to, to not criticize and much quicker to build up. It's the fruit of the Spirit there. Important things for us to consider this morning. There is a place in this universe where you can go for absolute truth. The Bible is the inerrant word of God in that it does not err. It is the infallible word of God in that it cannot err. Therefore, you can trust it and build your life upon it. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so much that you would speak to us through your word. Thank you for the ultimate embodiment of your word, Jesus Christ, who you've given to us so that we can be restored in fellowship with you, so that we can walk with you, know you, have our sins forgiven. For the one here who doesn't know Christ yet, doesn't understand the entire purpose of the Bible may even this morning be the beginning of their eyes being opened and their hearts softened towards you. For the person here who perhaps has been beat over the head by someone with a with their Bible knowledge and their Bible teaching and preaching, Lord, would you help them to have the good sense and the wisdom to not throw the baby out with the bathwater? That just because somebody abused your word doesn't mean that your word isn't what they need right now in their life. Do your work of grace in all of us this morning, I pray. Amen.